Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Show. To learn more about what was discussed in this episode, including device configuration and specific examples, and how to listen to other episodes, go to www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number five of the Tax Security Show, where our panel of experts discuss all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, new features, and hot issues being seen by the Cisco technical assistance security teams. The goal of the show is to provide useful troubleshooting tips and information directly from the Cisco TAC security teams to you, and we want to give you some of the knowledge and techniques that we use in the TAC every day to solve our customers' problems. So in this episode, we'll be discussing the different uh, firewall code trains, as well as part two of our failover discussion. Uh, we're going to be talking about troubleshooting failover problems today. So let's kick things off. I'm your host, Jay Johnston, and I've been with the firewall tech team in RTP uh, North Carolina for about five years. I have a security CCIE, and with me in the studio today, we have a good panel of firewall experts. Uh, first up, I'll introduce Blaine Dreyer. Okay, Blaine, you recently got a Flip Ultra HD camera. You've been showing it off to everybody. How do you like it? I love it. Um, 720p video and a stereo microphone uh, makes it really nice. And the thing I like the most about it is that it dumps the videos out in MP4 format, which makes it really easy to upload to sites or uh, play inside of the Windows Explorer or inside of Finder and Mac. So are you just plugging this because Cisco recently acquired Flip? Come I am on. not. I, I really honestly think I, it's I a really, good product. I really, really like it. Honestly, um, I hadn't given it much thought until the news came out, you know, that, that we, had, uh, um, we had purchased them. But um, once I actually got it in the mail, I'm really, really happy with it. And I've done a lot of playing around with it. So the video quality is good, and the video quality is excellent. Yeah, and honestly, I'm really impressed with the microphone on the on the device. And I think the main thing for it too is you know both its size, it, no tapes, and it's a uh, it's very very simple to use, right, for the average consumer. Yeah, it's really simple to use. It has one big red button, and uh, it charges via USB, and it can also accept regular. Uh, um, batteries. So if you're on a trip or something and your rechargeable battery dies, you can just plug in reg really? regular batteries. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It looks really good. So we're going to be expecting a Blaine TV show or something here, mm -hmm. here soon. Next up, we've got David White. He's a CCIE and an escalation engineer with Attack. He's been with Cisco nine years. And Dave, I got to say, you look you look pretty tired today. You look like you haven't slept much the last few nights. What's going on? I'm feeling a little tired, uh, and that's true. I have not slept much these last nights. So. Um, been working on a hot customer issue. So uh, as uh, as our listeners know, we're in the TAC, and um, you know when an issue comes in, we talked in previous episodes how we own those issues until they're resolved. And so sometimes that means working you know 24 hours a day around the clock and uh, getting the problem solved. So that's what I've been doing with a, a customer the last several days, trying to get them stable and, and resolved. All right, dedication. Next up, we've got Kurt Chapman. He's been with Cisco five years. He's a security CCIE. He's on the firewall tech team with us. And uh, Kurt, uh, last weekend, I knew you were doing tryouts for an ultimate Frisbee team. So did you make the team? Yeah, guys, I, I made the team. It was a lot of hard work <laughs> running out in the 95-degree weather here in North Carolina. It's pretty tough, but uh, it's a lot of fun. It'll take up uh, most of my time this summer outside of work. And uh, no, that and recently getting married. So are you going to help them get the ultimate in on the Olympics? That's that's an issue up for debate because that would change the entire game of ultimate. Why? I won't go into it too much, but um, we make our own calls on the field, and if you have to go up to a, a theater like the Olympics, you'd have to have uh, officials and umpires or, or something, and it would completely change the spirit of the game. Oh, okay. So it would be less fun and more rules-oriented, I guess? Yep. 
Okay, well, good luck with your games. Thanks. All right, so next up, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about the various firewall code trains on the PICS, the ASA, and the firewall service module platforms. So um, as customers, you've probably gone to Cisco.com to look at the release notes or to download uh, new versions of the firewall code. And you've probably seen several versions out there available to download. And there's also a link for a separate download section for interim images. And so it can be somewhat confusing to understand and navigate through and figure out you know, which image uh, your firewall should be running. How do you know which image you should be running? How do you know the differences between the two images? And I'll say that the um, ASA PICs and the FWSM code trains are much more simple compared to iOS. I mean, there's tons and tons of different trains for iOS, and personally, I find it very confusing. But with, um, with the PICs and the ASA and the FWSM, it's, it's not all that hard. So the first, the first thing we're going to talk about is the, the naming nomenclature for the images. So, for example, there's a software image um, 7.24. Right, so we would say that the major we, we would say the major version is seven, the minor version of that image is two, and the maintenance uh, version is four. So seven two four. So major min minor maintenance, and then optionally the image could be an interim image, in which case it would have a fourth number um, after it. And, and for that specific example, seven two four, when we talk about a train, um, like iOS has a has a twelve four T train, a twelve four mainline type train. In the ASA world, the train is the, actually the first two digits, so it would be 7.2 has a train, and 7.1 has a train, and 8.0 has a different train. So it's really the major and the minor together yep. for the train. So the difference is that you know between, say, 7.23 and 7.24, those two maintenance versions, you would really just have bug fixes between those versions. So the difference between a couple of maintenance versions in the same major and minor release or the same train would be that there's just bug fixes. Now, major um, major changes in the in the uh, um, the way the operating system is structured or um, new features would be introduced in a minor release or a major release. So 7.1 and 7.2 have different features completely. Um, and version 7 and version 8 would be um, uh, different major versions, and those would have more differences between them. So those would be, have completely new, ver new, uh, new capabilities and a completely different system. And I guess that's, that's why you see release notes for major and minor releases, but not like interim releases. Yeah, you won't see uh, release notes for interim releases, but yeah. And those release notes outline the bugs fixed, the open caveats, in that major and minor release, as well as um, the new features introduced in those. So uh, Jay was talking about the uh, different version numberings in uh, the ASA train, and the same is true for the FWSM train, as well as for the PICS train. So back in the old day, um, there was the PICS, which you know basically started it all, started off the ASA and the FWSM, and it had versions, you know, the 3X train, the 4X train, 5X, and then its final train um, for some of the platforms was the 6X train. Um, from that, we introduced uh, the ASA line, and the uh, it became the 7X train, which ran on both the PICS and the ASA. Um, from that point forward, uh, some of the PICSs didn't run the 70 train, for example, the 501, and that's, you know, some people say, hey, when you upgrade to major trains, uh, why do you drop support? And the reason is, is basically because once the hardware can't support it, meaning either the flash or the RAM can't support the image, we have to essentially drop support for it because uh, unlike iOS, we run the same image across all the platforms. So, um, you know, in the 6X days, the 501 ran the same image as the, as the 535. In the ASA side of the house, the ASA 5505, 
um, runs the same image all the way up to um, the 5550s and now the 5580s with, uh, with 8.2. Um, the 5580 was one that was a slight exception for the 8.1 release um, just because we need to get the hardware out fast enough. It was a major architectural change in the hardware. We had to come up with a new release just for it. But in general, the same image runs across all the different platforms. And 8.0 is a, uh, a major upgrade, and in that we have uh, a couple of differences, notably all the new features that are available, uh, things like WebVPN, EIGRP routing, uh, threat detection is a big one, and doing virtual IPS sensors for the AIPSSM. Are there any features that the ASA has that the PIX doesn't? Um, there's a few. I mean, um, when... 7.0 was run on both the PIX and ASA, right? And then when we started moving into 8-code, all these new features started flooding in, and with the ASAs having more horsepower and more ability to run these features, we, st we did start adding a lot on. Right, and that's, and that's kind of key, too, is, you know, there's a common misconception from some people, or the, at least the conspiracy people, that say, hey, Cisco just wants you to upgrade the new hardware, and that's why they're not releasing the feature. And that that's totally not the case. Um, it's really, if the box can't perform at the performance level it needs to, or we can't, you know, for example, like WebVPN, I mean, with the older processors that are on the Pixis, they just can't handle that CPU-intensive task and do the other things that are associated with it. So we had to remove that capability from the images that run on the Pix. So with the Pix software, I mean, we're talking about um, the last versions that it's going to, the last major versions that it's going to run. So how, how much longer are we going to support it? I mean, what's the last versions it's going to run? We've got the ASA out now, so... Where does that leave the PIX firewalls? Right, so the PIX, the end of software support, actually is in July of 2009. Basically, there's not going to be any more images built for the PIX uh, appliances. For the ASA, going forward, uh, we have interims that are posted internally every week to two weeks, depending on um, the specific release. Every four interims, we try to post an interim out to CCO for everyone to download and uh, upgrade if needed for uh, spot fixes of their devices. So when would a customer run an interim, right? What's, what's the point? The point of an interim is, uh, as I mentioned briefly before, just to get a spot fix for an identified bug that they're hitting. Uh, you wouldn't upgrade to an interim for any other reason. So either the customer can identify the bug based on going, you know, observing the symptoms, going to the bug toolkit on Cisco.com, finding the bug and seeing that, hey, it's resolved in this version, going and looking out if the interim exists or a later interim exists that would contain that fix, and then they can upgrade. Or by nature of TAC, you know, them calling in and saying, I'm running into this bug, TAC saying, okay, it's fixed in this version, upgrade to the interim release that will contain that fix. And if the bug isn't serious enough, again, they could, you know, wait until the next maintenance release came out to upgrade because, again, all the images are cumulative, all the fixes are cumulative. And if you find a bug that you believe you're hitting and you don't see the image online, it could just be that we're in between cycles and we haven't posted the latest interim on CCO. Um, one should be coming out within the next month to two months. For the CCO posted interim images that we have, um, they undergo a series of automated regression testing um, that takes uh, several days to complete. And that testing is a little bit uh, more substantial than the automated regression testing that we do for the regular weekly interims that we build um, internally. And then when we come to a maintenance release, we have a, a full suite of automated regression testing in addition to several weeks of manual um, testing. So the automated regression testing, uh, actually, uh, we call it automated because we've created scripts and, and test case 
um, that, that run fully automated um, and then report any type of failures that are detected. And the reason for that is it enables us to run thousands and thousands of, of user test case scenarios to verify every feature um, is operational on the box. So um, the po interims we post on CCO undergo that testing, and then the maintenance builds have that. And in addition, they undergo a lot of manual um, testing as well. Okay, and, and like Dave said earlier, um, the 8.1 train of code is only available for the um, 5580 platform. So you would not load that on a 5505, 5510, 5520. It basically only runs on the uh, 5580. Version 8.2 is available for all ASA versions. So, you know, 8.21 you can load on, you know, either a single processor or multiprocessor ASAs, uh, but you will need to make sure you download the appropriate image. For the 5580, which is the multiprocessor image, you'll need to make sure to download the image which has SMP in the name, and that stands for the Symmetric multi Multiple Processing. Um, so you just need, need to make sure you load the right binary image on there. And so getting back to the images and, and bug fixes or, you know, what causes customers to upgrade, um, it, all of our images we mentioned before are cumulative, which means if you get an image and, say, the interim release is .5, right, then that bug fix, you know, all bug fixes that are in the .5 release will be in the .6 and the .7 and everything higher, right? Additionally, if you drop the interim and bump up the next maintenance uh, build on it, then those fixes are in there as well. They're cumulative. Also, when we discover a bug, we look to discover, you know, where was that bug introduced? And we try to uh, fix it in the earliest uh, train that the bug is, exists. So, you know, a customer might report a bug on 8.0, but we look at it and we say, oh, this is applicable to uh, 7.2 and higher. We'll make the change and commit it to the 7.2 train, and that automatically waterfalls down into all the higher trains. So the 8.0, the 8.1, and the 8.2. So I think that's important because I, we do get a lot of cases where customers find a bug on CCO they think they're hitting, and they'll say, okay, uh, they open a tech case and they say, um, you know, I need the fix for this, I need an image with the fix for this bug. The bug online says it's fixed in, say, version 7.2.2. Um, I want version 7.2.2, right? Please, you know, provide that image to me to load on the firewall. But we might then have version 7.2.4 out uh, for download on Cisco.com, and the recommendation would be to obviously go with version 7.2.4 because it just has that bug fix as well as lots of other bug fixes. Right. You'd always want to run the latest maintenance release in a train, um, given the option. And so I know we spent a, a fair bit of time talking about the uh, PICS and ASA here, but the FWSM is very similar um, with the same respect to bug fixing and to their code trains. Yes, the FWSM... Um has basically three main lines of code right now. The, the 2.x, uh, mainly you want to be running the 2.3 uh, version of code if you're on 2.x, the 3.x, and then the 4.x versions of code. Um, as you know, the FTBSM does have some feature parity with the ASA train. Uh, 2.x uh, loosely relates to the PICS 6.x code train. Uh, 3.x relates to the ASA 7.x and um, those are basically going to produce uh, the very similar CLI uh, look and feel uh, between the FWSM and the ASA. And one thing that's interesting about the FWSM releases on CCO is that there are no interim releases. So if you remember us talking about major, minor, maintenance, and interim, there are no interim releases for the FWSM. There used to be back in the two, three days. There used to be. There, there are not anymore. So we have to rely on the maintenance releases, right? And those happen about every 8 to 12 weeks. Right. They, they, they used to do interims, and they, that, 
that business unit move to a what's known as a scheduled maintenance release. So they do periodic scheduled maintenance releases instead of having them planned to fit within their schedule. They're a time-based maintenance release, and that's why they did away with the interims. So I guess uh, to wrap this up, I mean, really, um, if you're going to upgrade the code on your firewall, um, you know, only upgrade the major or the minor versions if you need those features. If you're running version uh, 8.0 and um, you're thinking about upgrading to version 8.2, really only do that if you need those new features in 8.2. Don't do it. You know, there's the idea of running the latest and the greatest. Well, it'd be a good idea to run the latest maintenance release in the train. So run the latest release of 8.0. something, right, that we have available. But, you know, it's not really a good idea to upgrade to version 8.2 unless you specifically need a feature in that, in that train. Um, so that about wraps it up for the non-technical discussion. Uh, now we're going to talk about the second part of our troubleshooting failover um, episode. So in episode number one, we discussed failover concepts and how to basic configuration and just some basic information about failover. So today we're going to talk about uh, the failover process, uh, how to diagnose if you have experienced a failover, and how to um, run some commands to verify that it's working optimally. So the, the first thing we, need, we talked about was that the uh, firewall process is going to monitor the peer device. So you've got an active box and you've got a standby box, and um, they're going to constantly be in contact with each other to verify that the peer is healthy and that there hasn't been some sort of failure of the peer or of an interface of the peer or an, you know, an, an, a failure of an adjacent switch that would bring something like the switch port down. Right, and so how, how the boxes do that is they actually send out um, some pr proprietary hello messages out all the interfaces. Um, and those are sent from both devices, both the active and the standby. And when the message is sent to the peer, uh, upon receipt of it, it needs to acknowledge that you know, it received the message and it processed it and it's sending back um, the reply to it. Um, and so that allows us to know, both boxes, to know that uh, the peer is still alive on all those interfaces um, as well as on the failover LAN interface. And the interval at which we send out these messages are controlled by a couple of commands. Um, one is the, pull, the, the unit pull time, and the other is the interface pull time. So the unit pull time is used for the LAN failover link on the ASA um, and the PIX platforms when you're using LAN uh, interface as well as on the FWSM. On the PIX that use the serial um, cable for failover, uh, the unit isn't needed because all the information is sent across the serial link. Uh, but for the LAN interface, the, the unit hold time is used and in uh, version 7x, we introduced a sub-second uh, failover. And what this allows you to do is you can set that unit pull time down to about 250 milliseconds um, with a hold time of 750 milliseconds, such that we can detect a failure uh, with less in less than a second and failover and resume traffic passing in, in a less than a second, you know, at 750 milliseconds. So, so that's sub-second failover. So when you say detect a, fail a failure, what are you talking about? Like... Are we talking about if somebody, you know, configures something wrong on the peer device? Are you talking about if it, um, you know, crashes? Or what do you mean? Right. So, so any and all of the above. So, particular for the unit failure, that means the entire unit would have to die or go away or stop responding. And so, how that works is, um, again, at the at the unit pull time, we send out a hello message. So, if that's at 250 milliseconds, every 250 milliseconds, both devices would send a hello. If the peer goes away, um, say it crashes, you power it off, or some other um, catastrophic event occurs, then 
after two missed hellos, again, because we send the hellos and we're expecting acknowledgement. So if we miss two acknowledgements to our hellos, that would be uh, 500 milliseconds, um, we start to go into testing mode because we missed uh, two in a row. And so for testing mode, when the unit interface um, detects a failure, we will send out a hello message out all other interfaces, all data interfaces, to check to see if the mate is still alive and just lost the LAN link or if the mate's completely gone. So if we get a response from any of the interfaces, then we'll assume that the mate is still alive and just that LAN interface uh, failed. If we don't get a response from any of the interfaces, then we immediately uh, would assume control if we were the standby. Uh, if we were in a standby state, we would assume control and go to, uh, go to an active state. So that reminds me of um, a case I actually had. I've seen this probably two or three times in the attack where um, a customer's maybe just doing testing and they like to test you know, by pulling the power. Once they've got failover configured, go to the active box, pull the power on the active box, and make sure the standby takes over. But in this case, the customer said that when they pulled the power on the active firewall, that the standby firewall didn't take over and it just you know, continued to stay in the standby state. He could see that it was going through its testing to see if the other mate was there, but that those, those um, tests were passing. So we dug around the case, we did some packet captures, we had him uh, rerun his test while we were um, had access to his firewall. And it turned out that one of those uh, unit tests is that the firewall sends an ARP request out all of its interfaces for the peer IP addresses of the mate firewall. So um, it would send an ARP request for the interface IPs of the firewall that it lost communications with. Now, usually if the firewall if the firewall's powered off, it's not going to respond, in which case we know he's not there, and then we'll take the active role. But in this case, there was a misconfigured device on that same subnet that was replying to the ARP request that the standby firewall sent out. So um, once the standby firewall, during its testing, it sent out an ARP for the IP, it got an incorrect ARP response from a misconfigured device, and it said, oh, okay, well, I got an ARP response, therefore that firewall must still exist. I won't fail over, I'll stay in the standby state. And... Uh, and, uh, that was causing your customer's problem. Then. Yeah. So we've actually fixed that. So we changed the behavior such that instead of sending out ARPs like we used to do, we now send failover hello messages out such that um, in that particular case, since the failover hello message uses a proprietary protocol, um, the other device wouldn't be able to, to validate and confirm it. And additionally, you can encrypt those messages as a... Uh, as Blaine talked about in our last episode, how you encrypt the, the failure of communication such that you know they, they couldn't be spoofed either. Um, so yeah, that, that, that issue that you describe and the customers that have run into that, that's been solved now. Cool. One question before I move on to uh, talking about the failure of syslogs. Is there any differences between the monitoring of an ASA or PIX uh, as opposed to an FWSM? So the behavior of the monitoring is the same. Um, however, on the ASA and PICS, all data interfaces are monitored by default, but on the FWSM, um, because it uses VLAN interfaces, they're not monitored by default. So you need to go in and add the monitor, monitor interface command um, to, to tell the FWSM to use those. And on the ASA, conversely, you can disable the monitoring on any interface by using the no monitor interface command. So we briefly touched on um, the different pull times and, and, uh, and hold times. Um, so I talked a lot about the unit hold time and pull time. The other command for the failover is the interface pull time, and that sets the rate at which we send out periodic hellos out a given interface that that is being monitored. Um, so by default, that's 15 seconds, but you can tune that down um, to I believe it's uh, I think it's three seconds um, is the minimum for that. No, I'm sorry, it's it's five seconds the minimum with a hold time of 25. Um, 
And so in that case, if we start missing hellos on just a single interface, then the uh, both boxes go into testing mode to determine which interface has failed. Uh, first is obviously they you know would perform a, a link test. You know is a link up on both boxes, and assuming that passes, um, then they go to, into another series of of tests where they're going to check to see am I receiving traffic and am I sending traffic out that interface by looking at the counters. The next step is if no traffic's being sent or received, then it's going to try to generate traffic. So it does that by looking at its ARP table and sending out ARP requests to. Uh, the devices that are in its ARP table at that interface. Um, if it receives a response back, then it knows that the interface is okay and, and testing passes. Um, if it doesn't, then we go to the next test, which is a broadcast ping. So we'll send a broadcast ping out expecting a reply. If all three of those tests fail, both uh, the traffic test, the ARP test, and the broadcast ping, then we determine that our interface has failed and we mark it failed. So just one thing to mention. I mean, I, I can see that you know once we introduce this idea of sub-second failover, um, I think it's very tempting for customers to configure their failover timers such that the, the pull times and the hold times are very low so that if there's a failure, you know, I want my, my standby firewall to kick in if my active fails as soon as possible. You know, I don't want to suffer as, li I want to suffer as little downtime as possible. But the, down the downside of setting those timers extremely low is that if the active firewall processes a burst of traffic or is busy for some reason, um, for an extended period of time, which could happen you know, under normal circumstances, then if some of those hello messages are lost um, or you know, that firewall is too busy to respond, then you might have the standby firewall go into testing prematurely or you know, when it not, shouldn't necessarily do that. So um, you know, the timers are set there. You can certainly tune them down if you'd like, but you know, we recommend you certainly do some testing with that. And, you know, only set them to their, you know, set them to the lowest values if you're very sure about, you know, your network, um, your network traffic profile, and if you, you know, understand the risks involved with setting those to their lowest values. Right. I think a, a good value to use is, um, you know, for, especially for the unit, you know, having a unit pull time of say like a second, and a hold time of around five seconds is is plenty, um, because with TCP, you know, for UDP, it's not going to matter. Um, you know, every, the traffic will go through and retransmit. Uh, you know, the application will just request it back. With TCP, the TCP layer actually do the retransmissions, and that occurs at, you know, I think it starts at like three seconds interval, and then it's exponential increase from there. So you don't really see um, a problem with even TCP if you have an outage of a few seconds until you get to the 9 to 15 second range, and that's where some apps um, can't recover from an outage that long. So, you know, as long as you set the box to failover, you know, in under nine seconds or so, um, you know, you shouldn't detect any type of outage at all uh, during a failover event. Now, during a failover event, the first thing you want to do is you need to, before a failover occurs, make sure your box is set to gather data during an event. Um, basically, the syslogs are going to be your best friend in trying to identify why the failover occurred and exactly what happened, give you some timestamps and uh, information like that. Uh, all the failover syslogs will be logged at level one, and the best recommendation we can give uh, our listeners out there is to at least log these messages to the local flash. If you log them to the local flash, they'll always be on the box, even if a crash occurs or uh, power outage or any event where there were no was maybe no connectivity to a syslog server. Right. So if you're logging to the flash, though, only log at level one to the flash, not anything higher, because otherwise you'll be writing to the flash way too often. But level one messages are mainly just failover, and those should be very infrequent. And so 
that won't be a problem for those. So what kind of failover syslogs um, should customers be watching? What can, what can they expect if there is a problem or if you know, testing um, starts on the failover process or something like that? They're going to see syslogs indicating interfaces going into testing mode. They're going to see um, other logs indicating the secondary taking over the active role. Um, and basically, there's going to be an error message that you can look in the documentation for to find more information out about that specific reason. So one interesting thing is that normally on the standby firewall, you aren't going to see syslogs. You aren't going to see the same data that you'd see on the active firewall. But in relation to, to failover, you will see the syslogs on the standby firewall. And of course, that's only if syslogging is enabled on the active firewall. Yep. So what about... Um, Okay, so let's say I come into the office, I'm a firewall admin, I've got two, two ASA firewalls, and they're in failover, and uh, my, my um, syslog server or my monitoring application says that the firewall's failed over, right? I look and I see that all of a sudden my secondary is now active, and I knew that yesterday my primary was active, so I knew something happened. So what do I do to start investigating to find out what may have gone on? So the very first command that you can run on whatever box is currently active, whatever box you're logged into, is a show failover. And that's going to show you if the primary or, this, or the secondary is active or standby. It's also going to show you a timestamp of when the last failover occurred. And then you can start digging a little deeper. You can do a show failover history, and that's going to show you all the, the reasons that a failover occurred and why one firewall believes it to, itself to be less healthy or more healthy than another firewall. Then you can go and uh, start checking uh, the uptimes of the, of the firewalls uh, with a show version. And that's going to show you uh, the current uptime for each individual firewall so that you can detect things like a crash. If, you're, if your firewall has been up for 40 minutes, you check it again in 10 and it's up for 5 minutes, you know that something's going on with, with that particular firewall. So show crash is going to dump the output from that and then you can open a tag case and we can investigate it for you. Um, and as Kurt pointed out recently, you're, you're going to want to look at syslogs. That's your best friend. And not only syslogs from the time of failure, but syslogs 10 minutes prior and probably 10 minutes post-failover so that you can get an idea of what was going on on the network that might have caused this issue. Another great benefit that failover gives us is zero downtime upgrades. Um, this feature is added in PIX ASA version 7.0 and later, and it's also included in FWSM 3X and later. Uh, basically, it gives you the ability to upgrade your secondary firewall, fail over statefully to that unit, upgrade your primary, and basically do this process without uh, having an outage uh, of your uh, traffic. Okay, so I think it's important to um, you know talk about with the zero downtime upgrade what versions you can upgrade from what other version. So on the uh, on the ASA platform, uh, if you say you're running version 7.0 you can use zero downtime upgrade to upgrade to version 7.1, but you wouldn't be able to go from 7.0 to 7.2. So if you needed to upgrade from version 7.0 to um, 8.0, you could go from 7.0 to 7.1, then 7.1 to 7.2, then 7.2 to 8.0. So you can only upgrade one uh, adjacent code train. Okay. On the firewall service module, uh, we only officially support upgrading within the same maintenance release. So if you have two firewalls running version 3.2.1 and you want to upgrade them both to version 3.2.10, um, that, that's, uh, that's certainly supported. Right, and the same for ASA. You can jump from any maintenance version to any other maintenance version or from, say, 7.0.1 to 7.1.3, right? You, you can do that because it's one major train. Um, one tr adjacent train jump. The other thing is is that you can actually run the two firewalls with two different versions on it 
um, for a period of time. So the, the, the design was really for it to be zero downtime upgrades to be used only during the upgrade process. But, um, you know, you can run them for longer. The more the versions are apart, the less we really want you to run them. But one example I'll say is, um, you know, say you're running 804 and you're running into a bug and you needed to run an interim and you didn't have time to fully test that interim and, and know, you know, have the confidence level that that interim would fix your problem and that it wouldn't introduce any other issues. So you could, you might just upgrade one of the devices in the failover set and run on the interim image, you know, 804.33 say, and the other box run 804, the maintenance release. Um, and that can run for, you know, extended period of time without any issues. You can run that for several days or weeks even without any problem until you have a confidence level and say, okay, this is working fine. I'm going to upgrade, you know, both boxes to the interim release. So that's another use of this zero downtime upgrade. And I know we've got, we've, I mean, especially work customers that work with Attack, we've had them do that, and it, and it seems to work okay. The only annoying feature with that is you get a lot of console messages. <laughs> with, telling uh, you that it's... Uh, yeah, you get some yeah. warnings telling you that they're not the same version, but uh, there's, no, there's no problems with that. All right, well, thanks for listening to episode number five. Please send topic suggestions and comments to securityshow at cisco.com. Remember, you can always open a TAC case at www.cisco.com slash TAC or by calling 1-800-553-2447. Join us next episode. We're going to have a special um, episode that's a bit different from the others we've done. We're doing a CCIE special. So uh, we're going to focus on the CCIE security, but uh, it should be an interesting uh, episode. We're going to talk to different people about their study techniques, um, and we're going to get some insight into how the, uh, the labs are actually created and proctored and things like that. So if you're uh, looking to get your CCIE and security, uh, pay attention. It might be, uh, might be an interesting episode for you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Show. To learn more about what was discussed in this episode, including device configuration and specific examples, and how to listen to other episodes, go to www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast.